0: This means poor visibility, security gaps, and added risk. That's why Cloudflare created the first-ever connectivity cloud. Visit cloudflare.com to protect your business everywhere you do business. Foreign information operations surround elections in Israel and Sweden. Domestic information operations surround local elections in Russia. Apple purges questionable security apps from its store. Are the silence cyber criminals security industry veterans? British Airways continues to recover from its data breach. What a cyber moonshot might actually mean. And ProtonMail says the coppers have collared an Apophis Squad member. From the CyberWire studios at Datatribe, I'm Dave Bittner with your CyberWire summary for Monday, September 10, 2018. Information operations directed toward influencing or disrupting elections have surfaced in several countries. ClearSky reports finding an Iranian disinformation campaign aimed at planting bogus stories in and around Israel. One Hebrew-language site, Tel Aviv Times, published plagiarized stories altered to support Iranian interests. Fourteen bogus Facebook profiles and eleven inauthentic Twitter accounts were coordinated with the campaign. Several of the sites involved in the operation targeting Israel closed after the exposure. The operation's playbook seems to have resembled the one uncovered late last month in the U.S. Swedish authorities have warned of foreign disinformation designed to affect recently concluded elections, which were indeed contentious. Swedish authorities framed the issue of foreign information operations as a matter of national defense, as preparation for a foreign attack. There's little doubt as to who would be doing the attacking, of course. It's Russia. And in Russia itself, a domestic campaign is running with the apparent intent of suppressing dissenting voters. A lot of people are upset about a pension reform the government is instituting, It's a broadly unpopular piece of austerity that would raise the retirement age for men from 60 to 65 by 2028 and for women from 55 to 63 by 2034. Apple continues to eject questionable security apps from its store. Over the weekend, it developed that researchers are apparently associating some of those apps with Trend Micro. The story is still developing and early reports may well be confused. Apple took the questionable apps down after Cupertino was notified of their behavior. Some call the ejection fast. Others say it was still too slow, but all of them say good riddance. Nothing yet on Trend Micro's blog. We stress that this story is still developing. Group IB thinks it likely that at least one of the two members of the Silence cybercriminal crew have worked or may even still work in the security industry. Where in the industry, they haven't yet said. Their evidence looks mostly circumstantial. Silence has been most active against Russian financial institutions. British Airways continues to struggle with its large data breach. Observers say that the airline's payment site was loading scripts from at least seven domains other than its own, and that it was out of PCI compliance. Some think the incident involves third-party compromise – similar to the one that hit Ticketmaster in the UK. The airline itself may be facing a heavy £500 million fine and a customer boycott. British Airways is in the process of notifying affected customers. We've been tracking ongoing revelations of potential vulnerabilities baked into the hardware of the CPUs we use, the result of speculative processing routines, issues that researchers have named Spectre, Meltdown, and recently Foreshadow. Yehuda Lindell is co-founder and chief scientist at Unbound Tech, and he's also a professor at Bar-Ilan University in Israel. And he joins us with these insights.
1: Moore's law uh, stopped uh, working for us a number of years ago. Uh, we, had from, we had many, many years of, uh, of growth where every year and a half or so, the speed of processors doubled. At some point, due to physical limitations, that stopped, and chip manufacturers had to look for alternative, novel ways to get speed improvements. Uh, Intel is one of the most uh, innovative, they excelled very much at uh, this type of work. What we ended up getting is a very, very complex chip that no one truly understands, and it uses many sophisticated techniques to get uh, our performance speed ups but also at the expense of uh, exposing vulnerabilities that, to be fair, Intel, no one was uh, aware of until recently. But that's the current situation that we have.
0: Now, when you say we have these complex chips that, that no one really understands, can you dig into that a little bit? What do you mean there?
1: So there, there are a lot of uh, different techniques that are used to uh, out-of-order execution and speculative execution and the way the caches work and the way these different things interact. So you have you have experts on the microcode level, and they'll understand very much what the chip is offering. But it doesn't necessarily mean that people running the operating systems have a full understanding of exactly what's going on. And uh, uh, even when they do, there are the different interactions between these different uh, parts of the chip uh, cause a problem. We, or, well, I call it a lack of isolation. Uh, what we typically think of when we run a piece of software is that it's running in isolation from other uh, pieces of software from other code running on, on on the chip. And that's what operating systems are aimed to do. The problem is that it's not the operating system that is breaking the isolation, which was the case until you know a few years ago. It's the actual hardware itself. And that complexity, the complexity of the way the the way the chip gets its additional performance and and, and, and the interaction between the different pieces of code and the hardware and the micro altogether causes this results in this very, very complex infrastructure and ecosystem that, that we don't really understand.
0: And these are, as you say, they're sort of unintended consequences. Do you suppose that um, we'll find uh, future chips uh, are going to uh, give up some of the performance in exchange for better security? That's what I would
1: hope. But that's you know my perspective as a security expert and as a cryptographer. There are plenty of other people who the most important to think, thing to them is performance. But the way I view it is that we should have two modes of operation on a chip. We should have something which gives us very, very high performance and we should have an isolated uh, unit, an isolated processor that we can use for code that, that needs to be very secure. And then that way we could sort of balance uh, these two different demands. If I'm you know, playing a game, if I'm a gamer, I don't really care so much about security on, on my chip. I really want just the best performance. But in many other cases, for enterprise use, we, we very much need security. And without isolation, I don't think it's going to happen. What we're seeing now is sort of like, you know, putting a Band-Aid on every single little vulnerability, but we have enough of those vulnerabilities to understand that those Band-Aids are not, not the solution. My recommendation is, of course, always patch and uh, a patch immediately because as soon as a vulnerability is released, the attackers learn it and, and, and exploit it. So, but that again is just the bandaid, but you have to put the bandaid on. You have to stop the immediate bleeding. The longer term recommendation for end users who, who don't have a control over the way Intel build and other chip manufacturers build their chips is to not rely on these trusted execution environments. I don't think we can rely on them for high security applications.
0: That's Yehuda Lindell. He's co-founder and chief scientist at Unbound Tech. He's also a professor at Bar-Ilan University in Israel. There's a fair bit of coverage that emerged over the weekend of the notion of a cybersecurity moonshot it's thought the U.S. administration is preparing to announce. Much of that coverage is sourced in part to remarks delivered at last Thursday's Billington Cybersecurity Summit during a fireside chat on the topic. We heard that chat, but we heard it a bit differently from the way in which some others understood it. A moonshot is a bold project that sets a challenging goal and a challenging timeline for achieving it. A moonshot is an effort to solve a big, difficult, and well-defined engineering problem. Remember, the original moonshot was the U.S. space program of the 1960s that moved from Project Mercury through Project Gemini and into final success with Project Apollo. A number of people seem to think that we're about to see something like this for cyber, a race in cyberspace similar to the race we saw in outer space half a century ago. That's not likely, and the administration officials who last week talked about and answered questions about a coming moonshot understood this very clearly. To call for a moonshot is fundamentally to issue a call to action, and it may be useful as an inspiration. But programmatically, it's not like President Kennedy's space program at all. As DHS Assistant Secretary Jeanette Manfra and U.S. Federal CISO Grant Schneider pointed out, there's no single destination and there's no clear end point. What they hope to accomplish, should people be energized by a call of action, is a set of cultural shifts. These include, but wouldn't be limited to, reinforcing the current awareness of security as important, that's emerging now outside the security industry itself, inculcating in customers an attention to and a demand for better security in the products they buy, educating young people in good digital citizenship, and pushing the Internet as a whole to better defaults, in a freakonomic kind of way. As Manfred put it, it would be a gain if security became something you had to opt out of, as opposed to it ever being the other way around. So, a cyber moonshot, should we hear a call for one, is much more likely to resemble a public health campaign than it is something out of NASA. Finally, remember the Apophis squad, the skids who hacked proton mail and boasted that they'd be forever anonymous and that the Feds can't touch us? They've apparently been touched, although in fairness to Apophis it wasn't the Feds, but rather the Feds' cousins in Her Majesty's service— George Duke Cohen, who last week pled guilty to distributing empty and idle but nonetheless frightening bomb threats to schools, is also, according to Proton Mail, a prominent member of the Apophis Squad, where he used a number of noms to hack, including double parallax. He'll be sentenced on September 21st. Mr. Duke Cohen is expected to be detained at Her Majesty's pleasure for at least a year. Touché, George. And joining me once again is Zulfikar Ramsan. He is the chief technology officer at RSA. They are a Dell Technologies business. Zuli, welcome back. Um, you know, we, how do I say this? The blockchain, it's become almost a bit of a punchline lately with so many businesses trying to cash in on you know, sort of the flavor of the month. I really wanted to check in with you and see where do you think we stand with this? Where are we? So I think you're absolutely spot on. There's this element
2: of blockchain that has now gotten this pixie dust-like quality where it seems to be an elixir for any kind of problem you can imagine, from saving the whales to establishing world peace to (laughs) achieving immortality. Uh, But the reality is obviously not quite there where the hype is. I think what people are fundamentally missing is is the, the important question, not whether you can use blockchain to solve a particular problem, but should you use blockchain to solve a particular problem? Look, the reality is I can buy a sledgehammer to push in a thumbtack. I can also just use my thumb, and I think the mm. thumb is a much better
0: solution to that same problem. So how do we get past the hype to, to know if uh, an application uh, actually makes sense? Well, I think you
2: have to start asking yourself some more fundamental questions before you even think about losing a blockchain. The first question is, should you use a blockchain? And, and really there are five questions that I have in mind that I think can quickly help you make that determination. Uh, the first question is, are you trying to store any kind of state consistently? Uh, the second question is, Do you have multiple peers who may be contributing to that system? Uh, The third question is, are you trying to eliminate trust in terms of a trusted third party or an intermediary? And the fourth question is, are you working with digital assets versus, let's say, physical assets in terms of what you're trying to track? And then finally, are you willing to sacrifice performance, in other words, transaction times? Hmm. And if the answer to any of those above questions is no, you should absolutely not use a blockchain. There are better approaches for solving some of those same problems. like, For example, databases, which have been around for a long time, and are really well understood, but oftentimes I find that many problems people are using the blockchain to tackle end up being much more easily and much more readily uh, solvable using database type technologies or more basic prior art that, that's existed for a long time in this space.
0: Now, on the flip side of that, I mean, what do you see as some of the ideal uses for the blockchain?
2: So I think the main use case for blockchain is in cryptocurrencies and cryptocurrency type applications. If you think about it for a moment, those are the areas where blockchain really acquired its first level of prominence. And the reason for that is that blockchain fundamentally is about trying to achieve a handful of properties. You know, blockchains are exciting because they provide a degree of decentralization. They provide a quality called immutability where uh, once you put something in, you can't change what's happening easily. They enable you to have public access where anybody can potentially verify or validate what's happening with respect to a certain set of items. And if you translate that back into the original problem space for which blockchain was invented, namely Bitcoin and other types of cryptocurrencies, there are key properties you want in cryptocurrencies that blockchain help you to address. Like for example, in a cryptocurrency, you might want to eliminate a single root of trust. You may not want to trust any one bank or one entity. So decentralization is very helpful. For cryptographic currencies, you want to avoid what's called double spending. So any type of digital currency, there's a real risk that if you were to spend that digital currency, somebody could take those same bits and bytes, copy them and try to respend that same currency. And so you need some mechanism for Ah, uh, public access or verifiability. You need some mechanism for ensuring that once a transaction is in, you can always check that a transaction occurred as part of validating uh, other transactions as well. And so I think when you take a step back, all the types of properties around cryptocurrencies and applications that are very closely aligned to cryptographic currencies tend to make better use cases for blockchain. But many of these other applications that people talk about are probably not the right ones. Or at least there may be better ways to solve those problems if you take a step back and think about your requirements more fundamentally.
0: All right, Zulfikar Ramzan, thanks for joining us. A pleasure as always. And that's the CyberWire. For links to all of today's stories, check out our daily briefing at thecyberwire.com.